Well, some of you may not know this, but it is in fact adoption month here in the United States. Originally in the 70s, Michael Dukakis, some of you might remember him, he had an initiative in Massachusetts where he was governor and he said we're going to have special focus on adoption. And then in the 80s, Ronald Reagan recognized Adoption Week and he made a declaration of Adoption Week. And then in the 90s, Bill Clinton said we are going to recognize Adoption Month and November will be that month. And so we are in Adoption Month. And I thought in the spirit of Adoption Month, we would speak on Adoption, that we would look into the scriptures to see what the scripture says about adoption. Something near and dear to my heart, not only because I am adopted into God's family, but because we have adopted uh, two boys into our family. And so I want to talk to you today about adoption, not just divine adoption, but earthly adoption and how the two relate. They they do relate in a significant way. And I, I want today to be an encouragement to you to reflect upon and think about something that maybe you haven't reflected upon or thought about before. So let's turn to Romans chapter 8 to begin our discussion, to begin our thinking about adoption. Why should Christians think about adoption at all? Why should we give it any thought? Well, the first and foremost reason that we should think about it and think hard about it is because every person in here, if you are a Christian, every person in here has been adopted into God's family. You are not naturally born into God's family. You're not naturally his child. You are orphaned and without a father and without an eternal family, without an eternal inheritance. But by an unbreakable legal reckoning, God brought you into his family and made you his child by adoption. You are God's child only by adoption. Have you ever considered that? We see this language in the passage that Peter has already read to us today. Thank you, Peter, for reading that so that we can have the full context. But we see context, but we see the language of adoption in the scripture in the New Testament very explicitly. And I want to look briefly here at Romans chapter eight and see what Paul says about adoption. He says in verse 12, he says, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Verse 15, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul is saying that in the Christian life, we are to put sin to death. It is a vital part of the Christian life. It is an essential part of the Christian life. And we are able to do that because we have received a spirit, not a spirit of fear that leads us back into slavery, namely slavery to sin and fear of what that sin will bring about. But we have received the spirit of adoption. So no longer do we fear God as our judge But wonder of wonders, now we cry out to him as our daddy. 
We cry out to him as our father. We set ourselves in his lap, so to speak, as a loving and kind and gracious heavenly father who desires and works for our good all the time. Prior to our salvation, we were lost and without a father. Then we had a God in heaven who was angry at us. And now he has brought us into his family, his family by adoption. He puts his spirit into us so that we cry out to him, Abba, Father. As a loving child does towards his loving daddy. Previously we were orphans. You know we had a father. The devil. But he was abusive. He took advantage of us. He used us and then he abandoned us. We were without God and without hope in the world. We were without a true family and a true father. Not only that, but we were rebels against God. We hated him. We wanted nothing to do with him. But then he came down because he loved us and made us children by adoption. Children who were not naturally born into his family. He comes down, spills the blood of his son, a costly price, and purchases us to be his children by adoption. Now we love our heavenly father. We cry out to him as daddy. He affectionately bends his knee to us to lift us up, to care for us, to feed us, to protect us, to cry with us, to laugh with us. He is our daddy. He is our father. Let us not be repelled by the the clear teaching of this passage that makes it very affectionate, our relationship with the father. He is your daddy by adoption. Wonder of wonders that the majestic father would bend his knee to pick us up when we were his rebels and make us his children by adoption. So Paul is talking about what happens here subjectively for the believer. When your spirit rises up in you and there's pain and enemies on every side and you cry out to your dad, oh, father, help me. That is the spirit of adoption. That is the subjective spirit, uh, uh, the subjective experience of every believer here today. And it's based on an objective reality, an unbreakable legal reckoning. Let's turn now to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. We have this glorious subjective experience where we go to the, the, to go to God as our heavenly father. It is based on unbreakable legal reckonings. Let's look at verse four. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. When Paul says that Jesus, the son was sent forth and born of a woman and born under the law, Paul is saying that the son came and took on full humanity. The divine son took on everything that makes us human. He took it on to himself. And he became fully man without sin. Why did he do that? In order to redeem us from under the law. So we were under the law. We were cursed by it. We deserved death. The son of God comes down fully human, takes that death for us in order to redeem us from the law. 
Full stop? No. Here's the purpose for doing all of that. In order that we might receive the adoption as sons. Notice the significance of that purpose clause. Why did Jesus take on full humanity? Why did the son take on full humanity? And to be pinned up on a cross and to be laughed at and mocked and scorned and suffer in our place. Why? What was the purpose? What was the end goal? It was so that those who were God's enemies might be adopted into his family. This reckoning is unbreakable. It can't be changed. In the eternal courts of heaven, the Son of God has died in your place and paid for all of your sins so now that you have the rightful uh, access to your heavenly Father and all of his inheritance. The entire goal of sending Christ into the world to bear the curse of the law was for those under the law so that they would receive the adoption as sons. That is incredible, incredible language. This idea of adoption carries with it both legal realities and subjective realities. We've already seen that. But look at how Paul continues in verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, if you think that I'm being a little too strong here, let's see it again in another passage. God not only makes the goal of sending his son into the world to uh, to make uh, those who are not naturally his children, his adoptive children, but in the eternal counsels of God before he even creates the world, he's planning this out. Let's see again here in Ephesians chapter one, verses three and following. It says this, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he has chosen in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has blessed us in the beloved. So in God's eternal counsels, as he was thinking about the plan of redemption, so to speak, the goal in the plan was to bring about an adoption of children who were not naturally his and to bring rebels into his family. Not only was it the goal, but it's what God was doing in his eternal counsels before the very foundation of the world. Our adoption was God's aim from the very inception of his planning of redemption. God planned to seek out and find spiritual orphans who were without a heavenly father, who were without a future, without an inheritance, and adopt them and to make them the rightful heirs of all that he owns. That is you if you are a Christian this morning. 17 years ago, a young man without eternal inheritance without a heavenly father, without a true family, stood on the brink of eternal destruction. But God came down and he shed the blood of his own son to purchase my adoption. 
Now I stand to inherit the entire universe with my elder brother, Jesus Christ. I was a rebel without inheritance. I am now a son with an eternal inheritance who cries out to his heavenly daddy with affection and love in times of help, in times of joy, in times of need. He is my father. Five years ago, there was a little boy in Ethiopia without a future, without a father, without a mother, without inheritance, without a family. And we went over to Ethiopia and we got that little boy and we made him ours by an unbreakable legal reckoning. And now he stands to inherit everything that is mine. Previously without an inheritance, now a son with an inheritance, with a daddy, with a mommy, with a future. And now I pour out all my love and affection upon him. I look out for his good. I discipline him and I train him for his good and so on. And the exact same thing could be said about a little Chinese boy whom we sought out two and a half years ago in the summer of 2014. They both have received all the rights and privileges of full sonship into our family, not naturally born by or through us, but recipients of every right and privilege as a biological children, a child would receive. That is glorious. And that is a picture, if we are reading Galatians and reading Romans and reading Ephesians correctly, that is a picture of the gospel. And that is what God has done with everyone here who is a believer in Jesus Christ. Spiritually speaking, God has spilled the blood of his own son to purchase your adoption. But guess what? Adoption is what made your salvation even possible. And I'm not talking about legal reckoning of making, uh, making sure that you are now righteous in God's sight and justified. I'm talking about the fact that if Joseph of Nazareth had not adopted Jesus, who was not his biological child, there would be no salvation for us because there would be no Messiah from the line of David. So we are children of God by adoption through a salvation that could not have happened without adoption. It was Joseph that adopted this child who was not from his body. And he raised him up and he trained him in a trade that Jesus would have received and used. And he taught him the Hebrew scriptures. Think about it for a moment. Where do you think that Jesus learned the passages from Deuteronomy when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness? Could it have been his adopted daddy? And Joseph gave up much to adopt this child. He likely gave up much of his positive reputation because of his wife's scandalous background. She had been rumored to be unfaithful. And now Joseph was going to marry this woman, give up his reputation, potentially a large segment of his livelihood. And then two years later, Joseph would lead his family into Egypt 
to save his son and his wife from the ravages of Herod, who had decreed that all children under two must be slaughtered. All of this for a child who did not come from his body. Had he not done that, you would not be a recipient of adoption this morning. So adoption is not secondary, secondary to the gospel. It is central to it. Well, now we're at the second point, and I forgot to give you an outline. So let's back up. I, I, I'm, the first point is simply this, that God has adopted all of his children through, I'm saying God has brought all of his children into his family by adoption. That's the first point that I want to bring forth from the scripture. The second point is this, that God has a special concern for the fatherless. God has a special concern for the fatherless. And this is abundantly clear through the entire Old Testament. I'm going to go through several passages. I want you to just listen. Just listen to the testimony of Scripture. Let the weight of the testimony of Scripture build up in your heart and in your soul so that you can hear the very heart of God for the fatherless. Exodus chapter 22, verses 21 through 23. This is God speaking to the, the nation of Israel. Care for the fatherless was to be a special concern in the nation of Israel. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan if you afflict them at all. And if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry. Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 through 19. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great and the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality or take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were once aliens in the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy 14, 29. The Levite who has no portion or inheritance among you and the alien and the orphan and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied with you in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work which you will do. In order to receive blessing for the work that they would do, Israel had to treat the orphan and the widow and the stranger in a loving and kind and just way. Deuteronomy 16 says similar things. Deuteronomy 16, 10 through 12. When you shall celebrate the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with a tribute of freewill offering of your hand, which you shall give just as the Lord your God blesses you, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you, you and your son and your daughter and your male and female servants and the Levite who is in your town and the stranger and the orphan and the widow who are in your midst in the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. Deuteronomy 24, 17, you shall not perverse, pervert the justice due an alien or an orphan or take a widow's garment in pledge. God is especially concerned about the orphan and the widow because those are the ones who can be taken advantage of most easily. As we'll see in a moment, though, there is even even, even deeper reason for God's concern for the orphan. Deuteronomy 27, 19, here's a nice thought. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow. And all the people of Israel said, Amen. 
So there's the law of Moses. And in case we think that it's only relegated to the law of Moses, let's turn now to the wisdom literature. Psalm 10, verses 17 through 18. Oh, Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You, he- you will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth may not strike terror anymore. Psalm 68, verses 4 and 5. Sing to the Lord, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him. Father of the fatherless, protector of widows, is God in his holy habitation. How does God identify himself in the Old Testament? One way is that he is father of the fatherless and protector of widows. We could read some more Psalms. Isaiah 1, 16 through 17 and verse 23, a very important text when thinking about the care of orphans and widows in the Old Testament because Israel was characterized by godless, hypocritical, religious worship. And God comes down and he tells them one way among many, one way to demonstrate true repentance is this. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. What's happening here? Israel is caught in religious hypocrisy. They are worshiping day in and day out and day in and day out, bringing sacrifice after sacrifice. God says, I want no more of it. Do justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. That is evidence of your repentance. Jeremiah chapter seven, verse six, for if you truly amend your ways, speaking to Israel and Judah, if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave you and your fathers forever. And you could look again in Jeremiah 22, 3, Zechariah 7, 10 and Malachi 3, 5 to find similar exhortations and warnings about how Israel was to treat the widow and the orphan. All of these things, all of these texts are well summed up in Hosea 14, 3, which says, you, in you, the orphan finds mercy. In you, the orphan finds mercy. God has a special concern for and compassion on the orphan because their earthly plight reflects a spiritual plight of all mankind. When a child is found without parents, it is tragic because it reflects a fallen world where death and abandonment are realities. But when a child is found without parents, it is also tragic because it reflects a spiritual reality that apart from adoption from their creator, all mankind is a spiritual orphan without inheritance, without eternal future. All humankind is orphaned without a true family. God, God's heart breaks for the orphan because of their earthly plight. Yes. Yes. His heart breaks for their earthly plight. But their earthly plight reflects a spiritual reality that is ultimately tragic. So let's think of this for a moment. If we are the children of God, 
who cry out to God as our daddy, who look to God as a model of character that we want to form ourselves after. If we are those who seek to reflect our heavenly father, like my son seeks to reflect his daddy and like your son reflects seeks to reflect you and as you start to reflect your parents if our hearts are going to be like god and imitate god in this sense then we must have a heart for the fatherless it can only be that we would have a heart for the fatherless Ephesians 5 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So our second point is that we see that God has special concern and care for the orphan. But we don't stop there because we might say, okay, that's nice. But we come to the New Testament and we ask, so is this carried over into the New Testament? Is there any hints of this kind of thing in the old, from the old into the new? And indeed, there is. Let's turn now to James chapter 1. And as we turn there, we can now see why James says what he says. Especially against the backdrop of the Old Testament scriptures. Especially against the backdrop of Isaiah chapter 1. In light of our adoption as God's children and with this Old Testament background providing insight into God's own heart towards the fatherless, we can now understand why James makes this statement. Let's look here in verse 22 in James chapter 1. Verse 22, James chapter 1. Let's open our ears and our hearts. Very challenging text. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Okay, James, what do you mean? What does it look like to be a doer of the word? Verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his own tongue, but deceives his heart, that person's religion, this person's religion is worthless. First thing, true religion bridles the tongue. A doer of the word controls their mouth. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, think Isaiah 1. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is, uh, is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So what does it mean to do the word? Well, James is not limiting, limiting it only to these things. James is familiar with other commandments and other scriptures, and he's going to give us other commandments. He's not limiting it to these three things, but he is saying that these things are, are essential Controlling the tongue, visiting orphans and widows in their affliction, and keeping oneself unstained from the world. So it's at least these three three things, controlling our speech, visiting orphans and widows in their affliction, and pursuing holiness. At least those three things. 
You want to be a doer of the word? Don't just stop at verse 25 and say, boy, I want to be a doer of the word. James tells you what it looks like. He tells me what it looks like. He tells us what it looks like. Now, this word uh, for visit, it might be visit in your text. This word visit is not merely go and hang out. This is the same word that's used when God comes and visit his visits his people with salvation. He brings deliverance. He brings compassion. He brings a holistic salvation. This is to care for the orphan and the widow. We have a widow who stays in a home just a few blocks from here. Happy, right? People go and visit her. And if there are other widows in our midst, then we are called to care for them in their affliction. And some of us do go and visit happy and, and that is good and pleasing to God our Father. But how do we care for the orphan? How do we care for the orphan? Well, in 2012, GBF coupled with a, or joined with a ministry in Guadalajara, Mexico or near Guadalajara, Mexico called Hope House. We already mentioned it today. And there, this is a, an orphanage for boys. And our church has sought to not only supply them with material needs, but then to go down there, to serve them, to love them, to be with them, to just give them joy, but then to also bring the gospel to them, bring clothing to them, bring them things that they need to make sure that they have what they need to live. And we have single people. We have married couples. We have people all over GBF who have gone down to this ministry, who have served this ministry, who have supported this ministry financially and through prayer. So GBF is caring for the orphan in tangible, concrete ways. But we would be out of step with the scripture if we did not say that adoption was a legitimate, even glorious way to care for the orphan. Is not adoption, in light of what we know about our own adoption, a God-ordained means of caring for the orphan? I would say yes and amen. Now, let me be clear. Scripture does not command all Christians to adopt. I think there is great wisdom in the way James puts this command together and the way the other scriptures are put together so that we don't walk away from the scripture feeling like there is a command for all families to adopt. There is not. Let's make that clear. But there is a call for every Christian here this morning to care for the orphan. You can use all kinds of exegetical gymnastics to get out a, a clear text of scripture. You cannot debate with James when he says pure and undefiled religion looks like this to visit and care for the orphan. However, scripture calls all of us to care for the orphan, all Christians to care for the orphan. It does not command all Christian families to adopt. However, however, there may be some here today that God is in fact calling to adopt children. And maybe you've had desires well up in you for that very thing. And they're being smothered out by objections 
objections of self-protection, objections of unclarity, of uncertainty about the future. And I want to just take a moment now to answer a few of those objections to perhaps help you reignite that desire again for adoption. For some of us, the thought of adoption doesn't sit well because we have concluded that we only want biological children. You know, sometimes more often with my wife than with me because she's with the boys so often and so often with the boys out at the store and so on, people will ask, are they your children? Meaning, are they your biological children or are you just a caretaker? Are they our children? Yes, they are our children. But this is what I'm talking about here, this desire, uh, this idea of our own children, namely biological children. And you might not be thinking of adoption because you only want to have biological children. And again, I'm not suggesting that all Christians should adopt. And I'm not suggesting that the scripture calls all Christians to adopt. It does not. But we have to have the spiritual wherewithal to be honest with our own motives here. Why are we so tied to having only biological children in our family? Is it because we have concluded that we only want to see our physical reflection in our children? Now, it is a glorious wonderful reality that a man and a woman, a husband and wife can come together in sexual union and produce a child that reflects them both in their physical characteristics. That is beautiful. That is glorious. That is a gift from God. But could it be that we don't consider adoption an option because we want to see our physical selves in our children more than we want to see our spiritual and moral selves in our children? We should all know that more important than our children reflecting our physical features is our children reflecting our godly character. Who cares if our kids are good looking if they don't love God? Who cares if they don't look, if they look like me, if they don't love Christ? In adoption, you will have a child that doesn't look like you physically, but with time and prayer and the grace of God, you will have a child who begins to look like you spiritually. And that's what really matters anyways. Maybe, though, you are a little hesitant to consider adoption because it isn't normal. You think it's fine for other people, like the new pastor who came here two and a half years ago with his two adopted kids in tow. You think it's fine for them, but it's just not normal, and you're just not excited about the not normal part. You're not excited about going to the store and people giving you weird looks because you have a child who looks nothing like you. Because you have a black child and you are a white person. You have a Chinese child and you are a white person. Whatever it might be, you're just not into the not normal thing. You can't get over that. I hear you. I get that. But let's think about normal for a second, shall we? Let's just, let's just tease this out. Think about this theological reality. Other than Jesus Christ, all of God's children are children by adoption. God only has one child, so to speak, that came from him, to use that language. I know that's stretching language. So in God's family, biology is the exception. Adoption is the rule, if we're talking about normal. 
So just consider that theological reality for a moment as you consider normal. Second, consider the composition of God's family. Interracial adoption may look strange to the world, but it's entirely normal in the kingdom of God. We tend to think of families full of the same race as normal. But if we take our cues from our heavenly father and think in terms of God's kingdom, we start to see that interracial families are actually far closer to the norm because God's family has children from every tribe and tongue and people and language. Revelation 5, 9 and 10. God has gathered all people of all races and ethnicities around his table for all eternity. What's normal? That's normal. For all eternity. Now, my wife and I had my sister here uh, and her family this past summer. And uh, my sister and her husband have two, two kids by adoption. A beautiful girl from India and a very handsome young man from Guatemala. And when they came here, one of the meals we ate was at BJ's. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with BJ's. They've got great deep dish pizza. That's why we go. Um, although I didn't eat deep dish pizza that night. I'm wondering why now, but that's beside the point. So just imagine that for a moment though. Just imagine here we are sitting at this table. We have a teenage girl from India. We have a teenage boy from Guatemala. We have a little five-year-old boy from Ethiopia. We have a little four-year-old boy from China, both sets with two uh, sets of white parents. Look at that table. That looks so strange and weird. That table was the most normal table in the restaurant. If we are taking our cues from our heavenly father and from the kingdom of God, that was the most normal table in the restaurant. Five countries, four continents represented one table. That is a picture of the gospel. So we have to readjust our thinking around what is normal. What is normal? It's multiple countries and ethnicities represented around one table. That reflects the kingdom of Christ. Now, Amy and I did not go into our marriage thinking about adoption. Quite frankly, we thought when we started trying to have children that we would just, it would just start happening. And just, you, you do what you do and you start having children. But that's not what happened. But by God's grace, during the same time that we were trying to have children, we were living out in Louisville. And by God's grace, we were in a church that exalted adoption. And we were literally, I mean, literally, to use the word correctly, we were literally surrounded by little Hispanic and Ethiopian and Chinese kids from all over the place. Belonging to families that were neither Hispanic or Ethiopian or Chinese. We desired children and we believed that it was God's will to seek children. So the Lord used this beautiful culture of adoption in this church to cause us to start thinking about adoption as a way to start building our family and the way the Lord would give us children. But initially we were attached to the idea that our children must be biological because we were valuing physical resemblance and biology as most important when it came to children. Over time, however, we were shown 
that physical resemblance and biology are not of primary importance when it comes to the composition of one's family. So that's objection number one. What about another objection? Adoption is difficult. Adoption is difficult, and indeed it is. Adoption is difficult. Adoption isn't about parading around cute international babies. Adoption is not a photo op. Adoption is not an opportunity to demonstrate your philanthropic devotion or practice your humanitarian righteousness for the praise of men. To paraphrase Jesus in Matthew 6, 1, beware of practicing your altruistic righteousness by adopting international children before men to be seen by them. Adoption is not a badge of righteousness. What is it? Adoption is about bringing those without father and mother and without a future and an inheritance without and without the gospel into your family and giving them a hope and a future and an inheritance and the gospel. A child, however, may have special needs. They may have significant developmental delays or medical issues. Your dreams of parenthood may be completely altered or completely turned upside down by your adopted child. A child may be older, 10, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, which means they will come with a whole host and a whole history of issues. They may not attach to you right away. They may begin to question their identity when they are older. They will go through unique trials because they are black and you are white or they are Korean and you are Chinese and you will bear the pain of your child as they walk through these trials about their identity. Adoption is difficult. Don't begin to be sentimental about adoption. It is difficult. But if the church, hear me. If the church is not willing to step into suffering for the sake of the orphan, then who's going to do it? Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt? Madonna? Hugh Jackman? Other celebrities who have adopted? The state? The county? The foster care system? Who's going to do it? The very credibility of the gospel is at stake because earthly adoption is a God-ordained picture of spiritual adoption. And if Christians are not leading the way with earthly adoption, what does that say about our passion, about our own spiritual adoption? There's no doubt that adoption is difficult, but children are a blessing. And God has given us every resource in Scripture and through the Holy Spirit and the love of His church to persevere through the difficulty of adoption. So, so much for objection number two. Objection number three. Adoption is not as important as evangelism. I know of a story of a young pastor at a church and they had a ministry to orphans in other countries. And they had a ministry to help families who wanted to adopt financially and with other kinds of support. And some other, some people in the church started to stir a little bit and they wanted to shut down these ministries so that they could do things that were quote, more evangelistic. What kind of objection is that? Some object to the idea that Christians should make adoption a priority because it takes away from the real priority of the church, which is evangelism. 
Let's not get too carried away here, Derek. I know you're passionate about these things because you've adopted, but uh, we might lose the gospel if we are too concerned about social issues like adoption. You can almost hear it. But let's consider this objection for a moment by going to Luke chapter 10 and the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let's ask God, let's ask Christ to expose our own hearts and ask ourselves where we fit into this story. We can't take time to examine every detail, but there are a few facets that are very important that we need to grasp a hold of here. What's happening here? Well, a lawyer comes up and it says in verse 25 to put Jesus to the test. They're always doing this. The lawyers and the Pharisees and the, the religious leaders always putting Jesus to the test, trying to trap him. And this, this lawyer says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to them, or he said to him, Jesus answers a question with a question, as he often does. What is written in the law? How do you read it? So Jesus responds with a question. And then the response to that question is, the lawyer says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And what does Jesus say? You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, Jesus is not promoting works righteousness here. We know elsewhere that Jesus knew without a shadow of a doubt that the religion of Judaism was bankrupt. That the hearts of these men were bankrupt. The hearts of the religious leaders were bankrupt. No work could they do to atone for their sin. Jesus is challenging their his self-righteousness, as we'll see in a moment. But what we need to see here for us is the fact that this lawyer had a profound insight into the scriptures. The fact that he could say, these are the two commandments that the whole Old Testament hang, is incredible insight to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, I get that. I, I could probably get that out of the Old Testament. Okay, that's fine. But have you ever went back to find where the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself is in the Old Testament? Have you ever done that? It's like tucked away in Leviticus 19, verse 18, like a passing phrase. Uh, do this and, yeah, love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> and then the lawyer comes along, and Jesus affirms this later, and says, the whole Old Testament hangs on this. Love your uh, God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your, love your neighbor as yourself. This is profound insight into the Old Testament scriptures. This guy knew what he was talking about. He knew what he was talking about. When Jesus challenges the lawyer on the practice of these commands, however, the man is immediately convicted by his failure to fulfill the second command to love his neighbor as himself. As himself and he does what? Verse 29. And desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In order to remove his conviction and guilt, the lawyer seeks to narrow his obligations by asking, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus answers this objection with the story of the Good Samaritan. A man is beaten and robbed and left for dead. And the people who were supposed to be exemplary in their piety, the priest and the Levite, pass by this half-dead Man who needed compassion and mercy in a tangible, real way. Remember, the ones who are to exemplify piety. Exemplify what it looks like to love God. They walk 
by him. But an unlikely Samaritan, someone who the Orthodox Jewish establishment of the day would have despised, was the only one to show mercy to the one who needed it. Perhaps you have been moved a little bit by what I've said today and what you've seen in the scripture. Perhaps you are starting to see in scripture the glory of adoption and the call to care for the orphan. And you are finding the motives in your heart being exposed as you consider all your objections to adoption. Hear me. Beware of the temptation when Christ comes to you with conviction to muffle your conscience and to take the sharpness of the conviction away by justifying yourself and asking Jesus, who is my neighbor? (laughs) Surely the 140 million orphans worldwide can't be my neighbor. Surely the orphans in California, the state that has the largest number of uh, children in the foster care system, they they can't be my neighbor. Uh, My neighbor's somewhere else. I don't know where, but he's somewhere else. See, we have no problem with love your neighbor as yourself, just as long as we can, like this lawyer, narrow the command to the point where we only have to operate within our comfort zone. But the problem with this kind of thinking is that, as Jesus points out, asking who is my neighbor is entirely the wrong question. Note how Jesus finishes the end of the story. Out of these three men, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, only the Samaritan showed mercy to the man who needed mercy. And then Jesus asked, who is it who proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? In other words, with this question, don't ask questions of God's word that are intended to limit or restrict your obligations to love your neighbor. Don't ask, who is my neighbor? Rather ask, how can I be a neighbor to others? That was the point of Jesus' statement. And unless we think that he was only exposing self-righteousness in this passage, he goes on to say in verse 37, after he answers the, the lawyer who answers correctly, the one who showed mercy, Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. When you ask, how can I be a neighbor to others? Your eyes are open to see something. Namely, that when you seek to be a neighbor to an orphan through adoption, you are never in danger of losing the gospel. May we lose that lie forever. In fact, adoption is not only a picture of the gospel, it provides an opportunity to raise a child in the gospel. Not only do Christian families bring adopted children into their families to love and care for them and give them a future and a family and an inheritance, they are creating an opportunity for evangelism and discipleship. You are going out into the world to bring the fatherless children into your family and by God's grace, make them disciples of Jesus Christ. See, the the, the priest and the Levite were doctrinally astute. They were orthodox. We know that Jews had a concern about evangelism of making proselytes. We know that from Matthew 23. There were those who didn't want to compromise on the law of God. We see that all throughout the New New Testament Gospels. But their response to the dying man demonstrated that for all their orthodoxy and all their doctrinal fidelity and concern over evangelism, they were dead in their trespasses and sins. Their hearts were self-righteous and ready to deflect any command that required them to proactively love their neighbor. But Jesus is clear. If you want to know whether or not you are walking in dead orthodoxy, here's how. 
go and do likewise. Look around you and ask yourself, not who is my neighbor, but how can I be a neighbor to others? The objection that evangelism must take priority over adoption is to misunderstand both the gospel and adoption. As we have seen, adoption is at the very center of the gospel. Those who are inflamed by the gospel should be those who are most inflamed about adoption. How could it be otherwise? How could it be otherwise? My prayer is that perhaps, perhaps, just maybe, there might be a small flicker of a flame developed even today for adoption in this church family. That you will begin to consider it, to reconsider it, to begin to wipe away the uh, the objections that you have had, to begin to think about it biblically, to begin to ask not who is my neighbor, but how can I be a neighbor to the orphan? So what does this all mean for GBF today? Well, we must say that first, not all families are called or commanded to adopt. Scripture does not command it. And we see the wisdom in the way God has put together the scripture so that individual families can make individual decisions based on their concurrent situation. It's very easy to get caught up in the sentimentality of the adoption videos and the, the stories and the, your heart starts to beat faster and you start to weep a little bit and you're like, I want to do that. And you get carried away with the emotion and you step into something that you were never prepared to step into. It's not to be stepped into lightly. So we must say that not all families are called to adopt. However, all of us are called, all of us, on the authority of James in chapter 1, verse 27, all of us are called to care for the orphan. The question is, is how will you care for the orphan? I've already mentioned Hope House. Many of us have served in that ministry. We've given, we have prayed, we have supported the team members. We are actively invested and emotionally invested and prayerfully invested in this ministry to orphans in Guadalajara, Mexico, orphan boys. But some families may be called, maybe today is the beginning of God beginning to work on your heart to call some families here today to adopt. So adoption might be another way we care for the orphan here. Perhaps you're not, maybe you recognize you're not called to adoption. Maybe after long consideration of thinking, praying, you're you're not and your family's not or, or, or perhaps you're not married and so you think, well, how can I serve in this way? You can begin to help families who are adopting. The emotional and the financial cost of adoption, domestic and international, is immense. Adoptions, domestic adoptions can range from 10 to 15,000, from 20 to 50,000, depending on what country you're adopting from. It's emotionally costly. Families need people to come alongside them with prayer, with friendship, encouragement, and love. So you can proactively help those and pray for those and support those and seek those out who are seeking adoption. Do you know who they are in this church family? Because there are some. Do you know who they are? That would be the first step. What about foster care? There are children who are presently without parents temporarily because the state has deemed the parents unfit to care for their own children. 
these temporary orphans need the love and care of a family. And there is also opportunity for children in foster care to be adopted. Amy and I can attest to this next one, that this has been the case here at GBF, welcoming with open arms children who are adopted. Our boys love our church. They're happy little boys. It's because no one has batted an eye that they are adopted. (laughs) And guess what? They know they're adopted. At least Colton is able to articulate that. Easton, we're not sure yet. But they know, Colton at least knows he's adopted. And what do we do with our little boys in order to cultivate a love for adoption in their life? In order to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ, the glory of God in adopting us, how do we reflect that in their lives? One of the things that we do, and one of the things that we've done from the very get-go, is the moment we brought Colton home, we have asked him, before he was even able to speak, we have asked him, why did mommy and daddy come all the way to Ethiopia to get you? And now he responds back, because you loved me. We want him to love adoption. We want him to see it as glorious. We want him to see it as biblical. We want him to love it so much that he will someday think about doing it in his own family. And we say the same thing to Easton, and now he's finally able to say it back to us with a little bit of help. And then finally, we just need to have a biblical mindset towards adoption. I'm afraid that some of us are infected with this idea that we can get carried away with social issues. And this is one of the social issues we just have to be too careful. We have to be careful about. I hope I've laid that somewhat to rest for you. But we just need a biblical mindset towards adoption. And as this church, our heartbeat should be like God's for the orphan. We need a biblical mindset towards adoption. We need to see it as a glorious and biblical way to care for the orphan. We need to see adoption in its theological context so that our hearts might begin to break for our, for children who are without parents, without a future, without inheritance, without the gospel. So adoption is a gift. Adoption is an opportunity to fulfill God's call to care for the orphan. It's an opportunity to display the reality of the gospel. It's an opportunity to bring a child into a home where he or she will receive the love of a mom and a dad and have daily exposure to the gospel and Christian discipleship. Adoption reflects the very heart of God. We've all been blessed by adoption. Let's see to it that we're not the only ones who get to enjoy this blessing. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are moved by your word this morning. We are challenged by it. I am challenged by it. How often do I narrow my obligations by asking Jesus, who is my neighbor? rather than turning to a lost and dying world and asking, how can I be a neighbor to others? Oh God, I pray that in our midst you would do a work that those who have not thought about how to care for the orphan would begin to think about it today, that they would put feet to their faith, that they would be doers of the word. And that for some of us, it may mean, it just may mean that we adopt 
children who are not biologically ours and that we bring them in and give them full rights and privileges as a natural born child. Oh God, would you please work in our lives? Give us wisdom. Give us wisdom on how to move on these issues and what to do. Let us not be quick or hasty or sporadic, but make us wise and careful and discerning, full of love for our neighbor. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.